Okay, the reading this morning is from John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36, and it's found on page 1065. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, Luke, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son, and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Thank you, George, and uh, amen to that word of thanksgiving. Uh, Well, I spent a lot of my teens and early 20s playing guitar in the local music scene, lots of lugging amps around late at night, Um, lots of fun, a big part of my backstory. Um, The Adelaide music scene, I thought, and I think it's true, was full of creative and like-minded people, including some of my dearest friends, but I think they would agree with me. It's strange how even sensitive arty types Uh, can be so brutally competitive. Uh, You'd hear things like, oh, he's a nice guy, great player, but he'll never make it. Or, you know, when someone did make it, what a sellout. (laughs) I could find myself saying, oh, great set, man. But to my shame, sometimes I was actually sad to see other people do well. Because what if that hurts my following? It's one of those bizarre things about the human heart. Uh, It can take something fun and meaningful, stir in a bit of ambition, and pride rears its ugly head. And you find yourself getting this kind of diluted joy out of watching others fall. Does that happen 
in your world? You know, networking is a big part of lots of professions. It can get pretty dog-eat-dog. Have you experienced that? I reckon this can be a big one for parents too. Maybe not the trying to gain a following bit, but, you know, in the chaos of trying to raise little people, it's pretty easy to let self-comparison dominate kind of how you feel about how you're going. You know, you see this family that seems to have it all together and just, like, despair. Or you witness a parenting fail by someone else and get that kind of twisted sense of satisfaction. Self-comparison can be a killer, can't it? It can take something great and wreck it. Now, of course, we learn from looking at others But when you play the comparison game to measure your self-worth, it sucks the joy out of life. Okay, awkward question. Could we play that game with our church? We have so much to be thankful for. I mean, 10 years, God has been so kind to us. But imagine if we took all the great things about this community and we started to think, look at us. I mean, we're bigger than that church. We must be going well. Or on the flip side, we might hear really encouraging stories about people connecting at other churches and despair. It would be a pretty sure way to suck all the fun out of what we're about. But I mention it because it would be easy enough to slip into. I mean, that's the game that John the Baptist's followers slipped into here in John 3. So John and Jesus are in close proximity in a lovely, watery part of the Judean countryside, both with their disciples, both baptising, Now, there were various forms of baptism around in the first century, linked more or less tightly to the washing rituals that God gave his Old Testament people. And it seems that these two prominent figures baptizing in the same area sparks a bit of debate. In verse 25, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Maybe it's about like different approaches to baptism. You do it this way, Jesus does it that way. We don't really know, but it is a bit of an alarm bell for the reader of John's gospel. Because back in chapter 2, we saw Jesus do something extraordinary. He filled six water jugs used for ceremonial washing and repurposed them into vessels of celebration. The water into wine miracle was a signal that Jesus is doing something decisive, addressing the heart of what those Old Testament rituals, washing rituals, were all about, fulfilling them so that people might be clean in God's sight. So when we see this kind of bickering about washing in verse 25, I think we're meant to think, these guys are missing something. And that's confirmed in verse 26 when they go to John the Baptist and say, Rabbi, that guy Jesus, who you discovered, 
and gave a head start to, look at what he's done. He has stolen all of your followers. Missing something indeed. But we get it. A little loyalty, a bit of ambition, and pride rears its ugly head. John the Baptist and John the author are here to point us to something so much better than trying to gain a following, an undiluted, life-giving gladness. So let's dive into the Baptist's response and point one in your outlines. Life to the full is self-forgetful. Rather than getting crushed by the comparison, it seems that John the Baptist is happy to take the hit because the joy he's chasing isn't about a big following. And the detail that all this happened before John was put in prison reminds us that John ended up losing a lot more than a crowd for chasing that joy. And yet he receives this crushing update from his students as if it's great news. So we might ask, well, how do I get that kind of sustained joy that's not tied to the ups and downs of my success or my comfort even? Here are the three things that John the Baptist gets. First, that his career and his life are not his own. They're gifts from God. Have a look at verse 27. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. In a world of anxious competition, how freeing is it to recognize that whatever situation you face is a gift from a loving God with its own unique set of opportunities. Second, John gets that he's not the main character in this movie, uh, which is something that his students should have gotten by now. So verse 28, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. When we watch movies, normally we find ourselves relating kind of through the main character to what's happening. So, you know, you come away from Star Wars thinking, oh, the way Luke Skywalker rises above all the challenges in his life, that's what I want to do. I mean, we resonate with him or maybe Han Solo or Princess Leia. It would be weird to finish Star Wars and say, you know, I kind of really feel like I'm a real Chewbacca. You know, like, he really spoke to me. The way he supports the others. Or to switch to the rom-com genre, it's like John is inviting us to see ourselves as the best friend character. The Baptist can rejoice because he knows it's not his job to be the main character, the saviour of the world. Because there's a problem with living as if I'm the main character. You know, if I'm the main character in my movie and you're the main character in your movie, well, what happens when I want the story to go this way and you want it to go that way? And that's our world, isn't it? The ugliness of human pride beckons us to all see ourselves as little messiahs building rival kingdoms. Third thing John gets, he's not the groom, but the best man. 
Verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. This is a loaded metaphor because centuries prior, God promised that he would be the groom to his wayward people. So in Isaiah 62, God promised to rejoice over Israel like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Israel and all humanity had been unfaithful to God, but he promised to win them back like a long-suffering husband and to bring them into an unbreakable, loving marriage. And here's John saying, you know, this news about Jesus getting followers confirms for me that the groom is here. And so he sees this whole situation so differently from his students. Now, they're seeing it as a story of a popularity contest gone wrong. He sees it as a story of a loving God coming good on his promises, bringing lost people back to himself. And his role in that is to make a big deal of the groom. A few years ago, I had the honour of being the best man for my oldest friend, Chris. Uh, It was a great day, but I was nervous about that speech, okay? Because I knew that the best man speech uh, has great potential uh, to go off the rails as a thing at weddings. You usually see the parents of the couple at a reception kind of relaxed when the best man gets to the but seriously, I love this guy and he couldn't have found a more beautiful bride bit of the speech because it becomes clear that he's not going to use the toast to kind of draw attention to himself but to celebrate the groom so everyone relaxes. Imagine if I used that opportunity at Chris's wedding to do something else. You know, like maybe it's been a long day and I'm feeling a bit underappreciated. So I get up and, you know, ding, ding. Everyone, I just wanted to say, I actually got here a bit early today and I helped set things up before Chris arrived, all while wearing quite uncomfortable shoes. So, you know, cheers. Uh, Not only would that be an absolute cringe, um, it's not the fun way to enjoy a wedding. The but seriously, I love this guy approach is not only safer, but heaps more enjoyable because we're all there to get wrapped up in the joy of the couple. Life to the full is self-forgetful. Jesus is the groom And the direction of all history, what it's all there for, is heading towards his wedding day. John the Baptist saw that coming. The day when Jesus will be united with all the people he has saved in a world made new. And so it just makes sense to be happy in seeing a big deal made of Jesus. That's the joy that will see us through another 10 years, and another. It also helps us to be clear on our job as Jesus' church. Our job is to be the friend 
of the groom. How wild is that? The eternal son of God wants to call ordinary people like that, us, his friends. So all we want is for people to make a big deal of him. I hope you're seeing that reflected in kind of the whole 10-year birthday celebration. The thing that gives us the biggest thrill, it's not filling up this hall, it's not someone coming and enjoying the food or the music or the preaching. It's the person who feels really welcome here after years away from church. They came a little bit jaded and nervous um, after some bad experiences. But as they hear the Bible taught and they see people living as though Jesus really matters, they get something about him that never clicked before. Or, you know, it's the sister going through a really hard time who hears her church family singing about the resurrection and gets the courage to follow Jesus for another week. It's the brother heading towards retirement who's just being so captivated by his saviour that he's thinking, like, how can I use this season of my life to invest more in ministry? It's the teenager who hits high school with a really solid grasp of what Jesus has done for her and faces the challenges of being a Christian teenager, thinking of examples that she's seen at church of putting Jesus first. It's the professional who decides to sink a chunk of his weekends into teaching and modelling the gospel to teenagers. And if the food, the music and the preaching and everything else we do, if that plays some role in those stories, that's what we're in it for. That's the thrill of seeing Jesus made a big deal of in real lives. Otherwise, the whole church planting and sending missionaries off thing just kind of makes no sense. When I arrived here, the conversation point was, how can we encourage kind of half the church to leave, to go and start Tonsley? If it's all about our church increasing, that makes zero sense. But if it's about Jesus increasing, well, like we've seen a glimpse today of the people who have come to know and love Jesus more because our church shrank in size. My prayer for myself and for all of us here who are friends of the groom is that we might be able to own John the Baptist's motto in verse 30. He must become greater. We must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. What a weight off it must have been for John to realize that it's actually all about Jesus. Which, by the way, didn't make John a nobody. God gave him an exciting and crucial part to play where John got to be John in all his delightful weirdness. But life to the full is self-forgetful. It's freeing, but hopefully you can feel it's a bit dangerous. I mean, how much of a big deal of Jesus am I happy to make in my own life? 
what are those sore spots for me where Jesus increasing means that my ambitions to make a big deal of me need to kind of go on the back burner? Or here's a tough question for parents or those who play a big role in shaping younger people. How happy would you be to see those you care for giving more and more of their lives to Jesus? Now, that would include honouring their parents, but what would be the sore spot where it would be hard to rejoice if they put Jesus first? Could I rejoice if my kids grew up and decided to take a pretty different career direction as part of how they serve Jesus? Or perhaps if they remained single for the sake of the gospel? That I must increase, he must de... Sorry, other way around. (laughs) Hopefully someone would have caught me out there. (laughs) The I must decrease, he must increase mindset. Okay, it's, it's tantalizing, but radical enough that we want to be sure it makes sense before you dive in. Which leads us to point two, life to the full is Jesus dependent. In verse 31, John the narrator kind of turns the camera away from John the Baptist and his students and just starts talking directly to us. And have a listen to how he reflects on John the Baptist's mindset. Verse 31, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. It's a poetic way of saying John the Baptist was just living in line with reality. He knew Jesus is the one who comes from above and he knew that he was an ordinary person from the earth. And so he joyfully did his bit, knowing that the big plot line of the universe is God the Father making sure that his beloved son gets the most glorious, happiest wedding day ever. So verse 35, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. The stunning thing is that we get invited to share in that joy. Because what does the son do with everything that the father puts at his disposal? He speaks the very words of God. Calling us out from the futility of trying to be our own little messiahs, to wash us clean, to give life, real life. Life to the full is Jesus dependent. But here's the tragic bit. God the Son comes into his world, and verse 32, no one accepts his testimony. He invites the world to the eternal wedding banquet, and the world says, hey, who is this guy, and what's he doing taking our crowds? We're starting to see those debaters at the start of the reading in a different light. At this point, they're not only living out of step with reality, they're siding against their only hope. And so it all comes down to Jesus. Have a look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. 
This is what's on the table right here, right now. Will you be at the great wedding banquet in eternity? It really is a loaded metaphor because Jesus invites us not only to the dignity of being friends of the groom, but to be part of the redeemed people of God, otherwise known in the Bible as the bride of Christ. Not in a romantic or sexual way, but to be perfectly loved by the king of the universe, for better or for worse. To be radiant in his sight. To delight in and be delighted in by him forever. No matter what your relationship status, no matter how successful or otherwise you might be in the world's eyes, no matter how much you've tarnished your life, this is what Jesus came to give you. Whoever believes has eternal life in the Son. But you saw how stark the alternative is, didn't you? It really does all come down to Jesus. Those who don't accept his invitation remain under God's wrath, which is so challenging. And there's just no getting around it. And I hope that we do feel unsettled right now. God loves us enough to confront us with the truth because he takes it seriously when we tell him to get out of our lives. And let's be honest, for all of us deep down, our default reaction is to reject the Son. Just look at our world of little messiahs, lots of very nice ones, but for all of us, the instinct is to live as the main character in our own lives. And that matters to God. And he wants so much better for us, which is why he sent his son. One of the things that makes verse 36 so difficult is that it leaves no middle ground. And we're polite people. And so we like to think of ourselves, or maybe on behalf of others, it's not that I reject God, it's just that I don't know if I believe in him, or I'm just not super interested. Notice how John puts it, whoever believes in the Son, or whoever rejects the Son. It's not believe or be agnostic, it's believe or disobey. Not believing in Jesus is a moral choice. And that's hard for us. So let me try to illustrate. And if nothing else, you'll get a little insight into young straight out of high school, Jamie. Okay, the first wedding reception that I was invited to kind of on my own, not as Mandy and Mike's kid, I must have been about 18. And as a slightly disorganized creative type, I didn't kind of quite cotton on to the whole RSVPing thing. So I kind of just thought, oh, that's lovely to be invited by my friends. I'll see what's going on. Um, it was only after a slightly urgent chat um, with the couple that I realized that, you know, every invite that, you know, they put out there to the reception is 
quite a significant financial choice for the family. I kind of came away a little bit red-faced because it clicked for me that these friends actually valued me enough to kind of go out on a limb and include me in a celebration that meant the world to them. And I'd kind of been acting like it was just another party to consider. Okay, so there's another entry in just the book of Jamie's social slip-ups. But I hope that my little confession gives us a window into how much more offensive it is to God when we treat his offer of eternal life as what? An interesting idea for some religious people? As a burden that gets in the way of my busy life? Something to maybe consider before I die? I mean, God has done more than lay down the deposit already. He's given the world the life of his beloved son who came knowing full well that it meant rejection to the point of death on a Roman cross because that was always the plan, to take all the filth of human sin upon himself and wear it so that we might be washed God gave everything to the Son. The Son gave everything to the world. And that really does beg a response. And hopefully you're feeling how it is a moral choice if we hear about that and go, huh, I'll see what's going on. It all does come down to Jesus. And if you're feeling a bit red-faced about that, Just know God loves you that much that he sent his son to call you back so that you might never face the wrath that we all deserve. He is so ready for you to turn to him and ask for help. Because there is a way that's better than self-comparison, letting go of our pride and turning to the sun. So let me ask, today on our 10th birthday, is today the day that you need to become fully dependent on Jesus and start experiencing life to the full with him as the main character? If that's something that's hit you today, um, helping people wrestle with the claims of Jesus is exactly what we're about as a church. Please speak to a Christian, sign up to the Life Course. We would love to help you. So Trinity Church, Colonel Light Gardens, 10 years of celebrating the sun. As we take stock today, it is a perfect time to remember that it really does all come down to him. I've got to admit, I have been wondering if verse 36 is a bit of a stark note to kind of end a birthday sermon on. But actually, isn't that exactly why we're here? God has brought us back to life and he's put us here to play a part in the direction of this whole universe, making a big deal about Jesus in a part of the world That so needs him because we live in a world busy 
living for its own ambitions, rejecting the Son. And so the question I want to leave us with is, as a church, are we willing to live with the joy and the pain of believing that heaven and hell are real? That will involve a measure of tears and desperate prayers and urgent conversations because we know that God's wrath remains on those who don't accept his son. Do we long to see Jesus honoured enough to feel that pain? And on the flip side, are we willing to enter into the thrill? The thrill of sitting here today hearing God's word and knowing that this could be the day that someone decides to take the hand of Jesus and move from death to life. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray for more of you and less of us. Help us to know this joy of self-forgetfulness. Father, we just ask that you would give us and our church whatever role you see fit to see more and more people celebrating your wonderful Son, our Saviour. Amen.